history quiz. So can you name for me the president of the United States responsible for creating such powerhouse agencies as the Environmental Protection Agency, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and the Strategic Arms Limitations? I'm going to give you a clue. This is also the first United States president known to conclude a national address with the words, God bless America. Who am I talking about? So if you name someone from America's earliest days, like a George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, no, you're a long distance from the correct answer. Same actually. This is true of of more recent presidents. Um, I asked someone this question this past week and they guessed uh, Ronald Reagan. It's a good guess, but no. Another person guessed Barack Obama. Nope and nope. Now you have to go back a little bit. Uh, to get the correct name. So who am I talking about? I'm talking about the 37th president of the United States, Richard Milhouse Nixon. How many of you remember Nixon? Honestly, a lot of people are surprised by the number of positive things accomplished under Nixon's administration. And I think I know why. Remember, Nixon is a character whose legacy is marred by a single event that occurred the night of June 17, 1972, at a hotel in Washington, D.C. The name of the hotel, you guessed it, Watergate. So kind of remember with me, uh, on that evening, a security guard was working at the hotel, noticed suspicious activity, and ended up calling the police. And Ultimately, five men were arrested for breaking into a hotel room, attempting to sabotage the Democratic election bid. Uh, Nixon, remember this? He, he denied it. No, no I, don't, I don't know those men. But uh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, two journalists, actually just stayed on the evidence and were able to prove a connection that led to actually the one and only presidential resignation in United States history. The date was August 9th, 1974. Uh, President Nixon, if you remember this, stepped onto the helicopter, Marine One. And uh, as he did, he turns to the audience, flashes this giant grin, holds up both hands in the air, waving a peace sign. At the same time, recognizing that his life was anything but peaceful. This picture that got snapped of Nixon in that moment is uh, one of the most famous and requested in the collection of nationally archived presidential photos. For me, the pictures always raised a question. What does it mean to find peace in the midst of turmoil? Uh, Today on our edition of God Size Living, I want to take a little bit different approach to our time together. Uh, We're turning a page today in our journey through the book of Daniel. We're going to enter into chapter 7. Uh, when you read through most books of the Bible, it doesn't take long to discover that, that most of them have within them chapters that act like hinges. That is, uh, chapters that like open a door towards discovering the primary theme of the book of the Bible that they're con- contained within. And, and I think that's true of chapter 7 of Daniel. So here's what I want to do today. I want to spend a little bit more time than I normally do just looking at the context that makes up this chapter of our book. Um, I really believe doing this is going to make the rest of our journey through the book a little bit easier to understand. As we move through chapter 7, I want us to notice that a clear theme begins to emerge, a theme 
not only applicable to this particular chapter, but really one that captures the whole of the book. It's a theme focused upon what it truly means to discover the depth of meaning contained in the biblical word and idea of peace, or let's use the Hebrew term shalom. I want to challenge you today to think about your own life. Where do you find that you have peace today? Where would you say to me it's missing? Let's ask this question. Is peace the absence of conflict, fear, or turmoil, or or is peace something deeper than that? I'm kind of excited to explore uh, the depth of the Bible's idea of peace with you. Before we dig in, I'm going to tell you, I've always found that the backstory to the symbols that we use for peace in the West, uh, I've always found it to be kind of of interesting. I'm thinking about Nixon making those peace signs. If you have any fascination at all with history, there's a couple of sources I like to go to uh, to kind of understand the symbols that are part of our world. One one of them is a book actually written by an Australian author named uh, Robert DeHoy. In 2015, he released a book titled Ancient Origins. Uh, if you've never read it, he tries to answer questions about the symbols that we use and take uh, for granted. We're just, we're just used to always using them. So we ask questions like, where, where, when you make the okay sign with your hand, where, where did that originate? Or, or the swastika you know, symbol, we, we immediately associate with the Nazi regime. But did it, did it actually exist prior to Hitler's popularization of it? Thumbs up. When was it first used? So it's a fascinating book. Uh, if you want a quicker look at the meaning of our Western symbols, there's also a website. Uh, it's been formed by an emoji historian. Yes, there is such a thing. An emoji historian named Jeremy Berger. Jeremy's website is, if you've never looked at this, go to it. It's fun. Emojipedia.org. So for someone like me, who, who's at the receiving end of, of emojis that I have no idea what they mean, I go to that site and there's every conceivable emoji on there and a little bit of of background behind it. So the peace symbol that we use in the West, where where does it come from? So the V sign that Nixon uses in this photograph and that we use whenever we hold up our index and middle finger to form the shape of a V, believe it or not, goes all the way back to January of 1941. It's first a part of a campaign by the Allies of World War II, and it was, it was used, as you would guess, to signify victory. But here's what's interesting. When you study the use of the sign in other cultures, you realize it, it actually can have different meanings depending upon where you live. So East Asia, if you hold up the, the, the victory sign, the peace sign, right? You know what it means? Cuteness. Uh, yeah, cuteness. In some provinces, including the UK, the sign is an insult. It's almost the same as what we in the West would call giving someone the middle finger. In Iran, it signifies the green movement. In Vietnam, it just means hello. So when you see someone in the United States flash the V sign, it means something. Peace. But what kind of peace? Is it superficial? Is it circumstantial? Or is there more depth to it? And I think that most of us would say, well, look, that sign is it's easy to make, but peace is not so easy to come by. So again, whether you see the, the sign or you hear the word, my question today, really, what what is peace? 
I find this interesting. The Oxford Dictionary provides two definitions. Here they are. The, the first definition for peace is, ready for this, quote, freedom from disturbance, tranquility, end quote. Just, just hear the essence of this. The definition at its core suggests what? That peace is a condition in which there is an absence of stress, turmoil, war, heartache, etc. So I, I hear that. And, and the cynical side of me says, well, listen, when do our lives ever exist apart from stress or difficulties? If peace is a condition dependent on circumstances, I, I think we're in trouble because we'll never have it. We can talk about it, aspire to it, philosophize about it, preach about it. But if peace is circumstantial, we're, we're never going to have it. And, and guess what? The second Oxford definition is, to me, equally troubling. Here's the second, quote, a state or period in which there is no war or war has ended. You know what Jesus teaches us, Revelation chapter 12? He tells us that not only will there always be wars and rumors of wars, but spiritually speaking, there's not a moment of our lives when there will be or ever will be a time we are not at war with an enemy whose aim is to remove us from the promises that attach to faith. So, so the question becomes, how does the Bible address peace? And I, I think that the biblical idea of peace is really at the heart of what's happening in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, the way I like to think about it, if chapter 6 ends with the word peace, and it, and it does, again in Hebrew, uh, the word is shalom. Chapter 7 begins by pointing us towards the one in whom we can have actually peace. And I'm talking, of course, about Jesus. So as we as we turn to Daniel chapter 7, re recognize the difference between this chapter and, and chapter 6, uh, which has led up to it. Uh, this chapter acts as an interlude. Here's what I mean by that. Up to this point, chapters 1 to 6, Daniel's narrative has, has, has always followed the previous one historically. So chapter you know, 2 follows 1 historically. Chapter 3 follows 2 historically. Chapter 6 follows 5. The book's been linear. We move from point A to B to C. With chapter 7, that's not true. We're not moving in a linear direction. Instead, Daniel here is caused by God to just take a pause. Daniel pushed the pause button, come up to higher ground. And what God is inviting Daniel to is he's inviting him to find meaning in a dream that has occurred previous to the action that we saw experienced in chapter six. God wants Daniel to find meaning specifically in what has happened in Babylon, the fall of Babylon. So I think of it this way. God's pushing the pause button, calling Daniel up to a high place. Like, get get way up here. Come up on this mountaintop. Look down at what you've just experienced. And then from this perspective, I want you to see how I've been working, God says. I want you to see what I've been doing. Now, why? What What is God up to? So the, the simple answer is God, God has given Daniel peace. At this point, God desires to use Daniel to bring peace into the lives of other people. So I want to begin by just uh, putting 
this section of Daniel 7 in a historical perspective. I'm going to start by reading verse 1. And Lord, we're just going to pray that you give us insight here. Here we go. Out of the ESV, we read uh, Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. That's verse 1. I'm just going to stop right there. So let's start with the question of context. Where, where are we historically? Let's put this puzzle together. At the end of chapter 6, Babylon has fallen, and the new king, Cyrus of Persia, is in the early stages of putting together his political structure for leadership over his new province. So here's what we know. Babylon fell to Persia in 539 B.C. Hold that thought. 539 B.C. This verse of chapter 7, verse 1, what we just read, indicates that we are in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. That puts us around 553 B.C. Now, put this together. What Daniel is telling us, he's telling us about a dream that he had actually 14 years prior to this moment in history when Babylon fell to Persia. This is like rewinding the tape 14 years back. So why is Daniel telling us about a 14-year-old dream now? I actually think that the answer has a lot to do with the word peace or shalom. So pull back with me for a moment. Think, think again about how the word is used. Most of the time, when people talk about peace, they're using the word circumstantially. In fact, that's the way Oxford uses the term, right? The dictionary definitions. We are, so to speak, at peace when our circumstances are good or apart from conflict and apart from stress. And oppositely, we are apart from peace. We don't have it when our circumstances are conflictual or stressful. But is peace supposed to be circumstantial? Here's what I love about the Bible. It deepens secular understanding of words and ideas, and it does so by giving us a divine or cosmological perspective. Apart from faith, humans look at life from a horizontal perspective. The vertical's missing. So men cannot get up high enough to look down on what's going on in our lives toward the end of seeing things from the perspective of eternity. God, in his word, changes this. Once we get up above our horizontal perspectives, we see that the word peace or shalom used scripturally has a lot more depth to it. Over the years, I've collected a number of definitions of the biblical idea of shalom or peace that I've, I've really found helpful in my own life. I don't have the space in this podcast to share all of them with you, but allow me a couple. And as you listen, I want you to notice two things. First, how each of these is not centered in our circumstances or experience of life, but rather in our ontological experience of a life lived in God through the Spirit. Secondly, I want you to notice how each presents a holistic view centered in what God is seeking to work both in us and then through us into the whole of creation. So here we go. I'm just going to share a couple of definitions. The first is from my favorite author, speaker, 
uh, Pastor Tim Keller. Some of you know his work through his years as senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. So here's, here's his definition. Shalom. He writes, Shalom is, quote, the webbing together of God and man with all creation to create universal flourishing and wholeness, end quote. It's a lot deeper than the Oxford definition. Try this one. Nicholas Wolterstorff. This is really good. I want you to listen to this carefully. Quote, peace that is shalom is not merely the absence of hostility, not merely being in right relationship. To dwell in shalom is to enjoy living before God, to enjoy living in one's physical surroundings, to enjoy living with one another's fellows, to enjoy life with oneself. And again, I, I want you to notice here this sense that shalom or peace is something that embraces life in a way that whether my circumstance is good or filled with turmoil, I find my peace where? In a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. I find my peace vertically, not horizontally, vertically in a relationship with God that now begins to impact my horizontal relationships. Here's, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see Daniel is someone who has experienced peace in an up-close, personal way, in a significant way. From the moment that Daniel was kidnapped from his family and removed into a life of slavery under Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he's had every reason to be apart from peace. He's had every right to look at the pain in his life and to shout into the heavens, excuse my French, but to shout out, excuse my French, but to shout out, this sucks. But he doesn't do it. Instead, oppositely, he embraces what's going on in his life. Why? Why? Well, because for Daniel, there's a recognition, God, get up high, look down. God is working through all of the turmoil happening, and he's working towards a specific purpose. Follow this. The dream God has given to Daniel 14 years before the fall of Babylon assures Daniel all is well. Even as this, this new king enters into the picture, even as Babylon is overthrown, Daniel has peace. But guess who doesn't? The people of Babylon do not. Here's what I believe is, is happening in this chapter. This, this is a moment in Daniel's story where God wants to use him to bring peace, non-circumstantial non shalom, to a people whose world has been turned upside down the way his own was, the Babylonians up to this point in time, have been the most dominant culture in the world. They've viewed themselves that way. They've had the most fortified city, the most robust economy, the most seasoned military, and then boom, like that, they're overthrown and assumed by Persia. God's positioned Daniel to lead in a spiritual capacity toward helping people see beyond that horizontal perspective of life lived under circumstance. The dream that, that God's given Daniel 14 years earlier has never been more relevant than right now. Why? Because it's a dream that points to a God who is at work fulfilling a promise made in a garden called Eden about the promise of a Savior named Jesus. Now, next week, we're going to get into Daniel's dream. But as we close for today, I want to come back around these questions, the questions that we began with. Question one, are there, are there issues, circumstances right now that are interrupting that sense of peace or shalom God wants you to have in your life. Is there anything getting in the way of, of your peace right now? I've got to say, as a pastor, there, there's not one week that passes apart from my being aware of how brutal our world is. It, it's hard 
to live out a day, a week, a month without something knocking us off our feet a bit, and sometimes significantly so. So my question, if you had to name that thing, that person, that issue in your life right now that's interrupting your peace, what, what is it? Question two, as you think about what's disrupting your peace, what tapes are playing in the back of your head? This is important. What are the voices in your balcony telling you? I found sometimes the voices in my head honestly can get pretty loud. They, they don't shut off. I can tell myself something over and over and over, literally thousands of times throughout a day. You're in trouble. This is going to bring you down. You know, social scientists tell us that we, we actually have voices that play subcognitively in the back of our mind. Uh, we, we may not be that aware of them, but we're aware of them. They're just telling us something over and over. Sometimes they get so loud, I start to believe them. It can be paralyzing. So if you could slow the tapes down in your head right now to really be able to listen to them, what are, what are they telling you? Finally, how are you speaking back into those voices? I know this sounds a little bit funny, but one of the things I've always loved about Luther, the old monk, is the way he would often speak back into the voices of evil that were trying to pull him down. He would do it out loud. He'd get up at two or three in the morning and have a chat with, chat with evil, acknowledging, I don't have all the answers. Uh, yeah, I've, I've made mistakes, but always reminding evil and himself that there is a God who lives above our circumstances, who has promised, Romans 8, to use everything that happens in our lives towards the good of his kingdom so that we're able to find peace in the promise. Well, that's it for this week. I want to thank you for being part of this podcast. It is a blessing to me, honestly, to know you're listening. We're in the season of Lent as we come together today, and I pray that as we move towards Easter, you find hope in the gospel promise of God. I'm going to be praying for you and your family this week, and I ask that you would keep me in your prayers as well. Until next week, I hope you have a God-sized week.